All right, Revelation chapter 10. John says, Then I saw another powerful angel coming down out of heaven. He was clothed with a cloud. A rainbow was over his head. His face was like the sun. His feet were like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little scroll, which had been opened. He put his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, just as a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven thunders spoke using their own voices. When the seven thunders had spoken, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things that the seven thunders said and do not write them down. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created the sky and the things in it, the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. He said, there will be no more delay. Instead, in the days of the sound made by the seventh angel, that is, when he is about to sound his trumpets, the mystery of God will also be completed, exactly as he made this good news known to his servants, the prophets. The voice that I heard from heaven also spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that has been opened in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll out of the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, it is necessary that you prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So with verse one, when you see that John has written, I saw, or I looked, then that's another indication that John is seeing another vision. And so, uh, Verse, chapters 10 and 11, that's going to finish one section of Revelation. Then we'll begin a new one uh, with chapter 12. So this is an interlude, uh, the interlude between the sixth trumpet and uh, the seventh trumpet, just like we saw an interlude before between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Who is this angel? Why might it be Jesus? Okay, coming down from heaven. Okay. Well, you've seen angels with a scroll, but uh, you've got some glorious terms here that are suitable to Christ. Cloud, rainbow, sun, fire, foot on the sea, foot on the land, a loud voice. So different commentators come down in different, different places that this is an angel of the Lord sent by God, or this is the angel of the Lord. This is the son of God. It really doesn't matter, but just so you know that different commentators come down in different places. Uh, and what's, what's interesting is that in chapter 13, which we'll look at in the next class, is that Satan is seen standing by the sea. And then we see a beast coming out of the sea. That's going to be the government that persecutes Christians. And then the beast coming out of the land, that's going to be the apostate church. And they are uh, the agents, Satan's agents in the world. But Jesus has a foot on the sea and a foot on the land. And that shows that he's in control.
So that's the imagery there. So remember that imagery when you see the dragon of chapter 12, Satan, and then his agents of evil, the government uh, that persecutes Christians, and then the apostate church coming out of the sea and the land, you still have God's angel or Christ as the angel of the Lord. He's standing there. He has control. He has feet on both the land and the sea. Uh, do you wish you knew what the seven thunders said? Because verse four, when the seven thunders had spoken, John says, I was about to write, but then I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things that the seven thunders said and don't write them down. Do you wish you knew what the seven thunders said? Probably because we're all curious. Yeah, we're always curious, aren't we? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and that's the other thing, especially when, when you are reading Revelation, what do you get the idea of what's coming? Is it going to be good or bad? It's going to be scary. There's a lot of bad before the ultimate good, right? And so that's the thing. Like Penny said, we're always curious. We always want to know. But then, as you said, then there's a lot of times I don't want to know, right? Uh, name some of the great mystery writers. Castle. Castle. <laughs> Agatha Christie is one. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Conan Doyle. After Conan Doyle wrote, wrote Sherlock Holmes. Who else? And it could be mystery movies, too. I think one of the greatest mystery movie makers was Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe. The reason I bring that up is verse 7. It says, Instead, in the days of the sound made by the seventh angel, that is, when he is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will also be completed. So a mystery is something that someone has to reveal or explain for others to understand it. Uh, the mystery of God will be completed with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And then that mystery will, will be solved. You know, like, uh, you know, I, I remember reading all of the Sherlock Holmes books. It, it was a thick book. But, you know, to know, hey, what is the... Uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, you know, what was that? Or what was, I forget, now I can't think of any of the other ones, but there's always the ending. Or uh, the one that just came to my head is, I think this was Agatha Christie with the, the train. Remember that? It was made into a movie, a couple movies. The Orient, the Orient Express. Who, who killed the person? Remember? All of them. And yeah, now you don't have to watch the movie. It's all of them. You know, they all... What's that? Yeah, we just gave it away. They all came in and stabbed. Yeah. I know I had, I had, I remember when uh, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe came out several, well, that was a long time ago now. And I gave away the ending because I was talking about in the sermon. And then someone was upset. I was going to take my kids to go see this. I said, 
that book has been out for 70 years. You had a lot of time to read it. I didn't spoil the ending. Uh, but the mystery at the end, it's solved. That God, uh, that Christ's salvation is complete. And then verse 7, it, it says, uh, he's the... He said that the, the mystery had been revealed through his servants, the prophets. What does this tell us about the content of Revelation? That it comes through the servants, his prophets. What does that tell you about the content of Revelation? Coming. What's that? It's coming. Okay, it's coming. But what about that it's coming through the prophets? You, or you learn about it through the prophets. Something I've said every class we've had. Things they prophesied, I suppose. We've been warned. And there's nothing new, right? Everything in Revelation is what we've heard before from Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel. Uh, again, we, we talked about this at the end of the last class period. Uh, Irene had asked, well, how are we going to get to know this stuff? Well, it's harder for us because we don't read Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and Joel. But the people, the first audience to whom Jesus directs his letter of revelation to, they would have read them all the time. And they understood those visions much more than we do. Okay, so the key is there's nothing new. Everything that we hear in Revelation are uh, stories and visions and prophecies that we've heard before. We're going to look at a number of those in the next, uh, in the next chapter. For example, yeah, at the end, but before you get to the good news, just like any murder mystery, you've got the murder, right? Or uh, Dave and Sandy and I were talking about this before you all got here about uh, my youngest daughter, Belle, wants to be a, uh, what does she want to be, Dave? Forensic scientist. A forensic scientist. So a CSI agent. Kind of gruesome, right? Uh, it is interesting. And what I figured out working with Belle this summer is uh, if I ever go missing, she's the first one you should look at because she's she is so sweet, but yet she can be very devious. Uh, and because she she was telling it how to bury a body, and, which made me kind of nervous. You know, she was saying, well, you got to put it in. You, know, you put it down and you put lime over it so it eats it up and you got to plant uh, endangered species plants over the top so they can't get dug up. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so if the, like yeah. So if the, if there's a mystery that I'm gone, the mystery is probably look at her first. So uh, chapter Chapter 10, verse 11, the, the angel gave John the scroll, and he said to me, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will taste as sweet as honey, and so, the, so he does that. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 2.
So Ezekiel chapter two, uh, that's going to be page 1235 in the EHV. So I'll start reading here. He said to me, son of man. So this is uh, the Lord speaking to, to Ezekiel. He said to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak with you. The spirit entered into me as he spoke to me and brought me up to my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. He said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the people of Israel, to disloyal nations who have been disloyal to me. They and their fathers have rebelled against me this very day. These children of mine are brazen faced and hard hearted. I am sending you to them and you are to tell them that this is what the Lord God says. Then whenever they listen or don't listen, for they are a rebellious house, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. But you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, and don't be afraid of their words. Even though briars and thorns surround you and you are living with scorpions, do not be afraid of their words, and do not be intimidated by the look of their faces, for they are a rebellious house. You are to speak my words to them, whether they listen or they don't, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I'm telling you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out before me and in it, there was a rolled up scroll. He unrolled it in front of me and there was writing on both sides. Written on it was laments, groaning and woe. Then he said to me, son of man, eat what you have received. Eat the scroll and then go speak to the house of Israel. I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. Then he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your belly with the scroll that I'm giving you. I ate and in my mouth. It was sweet like honey. All right. So one, one reason I wanted to read that is that's John's vision, isn't it? You know, so much is repeated. Uh, what is the point of eating the scroll, both for Ezekiel and for John? Yeah, you're digesting God's word. That's the idea. All right. Uh, I remember you think of the psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right. Uh, I remember back when, you know, Christian worship, you know, we still call it the new hymnal, even though it came out 25 years ago. And when it came out, I was a vicar. And one of the songs that we sing in the verse of the day in service of the word says taste and see that the lord is good and one of the smart alex in the congregation i was serving at said to the pastor well i can taste and see that a big mac is good and he was kind of making fun of that liturgy and then the pastor just said it's from the bible okay what does it mean uh describe the sweetness of god's word to you when is god's word sweet to you Sweet like honey. So think of examples. Not just, I think, real grace. specific examples. When has God's word been sweet to you? Think about grace. Okay, grace. Promises. Think of specific times when God's word has been really sweet to you. There's been something really necessary. Funerals. Yeah. I, there, I would think of, uh, I've done lots of funerals. But I think of like the funeral I had for the one week year old boy. You know, that was hard you know, to do a funeral like that. But yet being able to give resurrection comfort to his family, there's sweetness there. There's another, 
other times that God's word has been sweet to you? Yeah. And so, yeah. And so when you have that forgiveness, uh, again, uh, hopefully you've had this opportunity in your family, but I've had that all the time with, with my ministry when people come to me in a sin that is really burdening them. And then to be able to say your sin is forgiven. So when I've had ladies that have come and said, I'm pregnant and they're not married and, you know, they're feeling guilty, obviously, others that wouldn't come to me and then be able to tell them, well, you're going to have to live with the results of the sin. You're going to have a baby, but your sin is removed. Jesus took that sin away. You're forgiven. You know, that sweetness. Any other times? Yep. I'm with you. I'll get you through this. Yeah, but it's sweetness. Yeah. But, you know, knowing what's going on in our world, like, again, Dave and Sandy were talking about that they can't even get mitts for the church. There's a shortage on mitts. Well, a shortage on everything. And as we see, I saw an article something i think it was in california that they someone had taken a picture of gas prices at the pump like eight dollars okay and then remember like a year ago it was like two dollars something okay and with whatever it is what in the world is going on but then that sweetness that jesus is with us he's going to take everything and make it all right for us that sweetness all right now let's look at uh, with john that it turned bitter in his stomach. You, so for example, I like eating hot stuff, you know, but sometimes it may not, may not agree with me. Okay, and then there's bitterness and upset stomach. Can you think of a times when God's word has tasted or felt bitter to you? Okay, yeah, when God's word has driven you to guilt. What else? yeah you want it and then yeah god's word says something different what else yeah and you know that's i think what i'm working on with my book is on civil disobedience and I think we might want to think, oh, I can just do whatever I want. And no, that's not what, what God's word says. Uh, there are times, uh, as the whole point of the book, there's going to be times that we might need to be civilly disobedient. Uh, we might just have to, basically the point is we might have to say no. But then there's other times that we want to say no and you know, God's word says no. You got to go along with it, whether you like it or not, and that's something that feels bitter. What are other times? Yeah, yeah. When God's word causes you to suffer, 
then there might be bitterness there. Exactly. When, when there's persecution and when I have to, uh, when you have to tell someone, Hey, what you're doing is a sin, that lifestyle you're choosing, that's wrong. And to think of the culture we're living in. And I think this is part of our issue is again, Lutherans were quietists that we like to uh, be by ourselves, but we need to tell people, Hey, that CRT, that critical race theory, that's wrong. That's actually racist. Uh, if, uh, if, you know, if you're a public school teacher and then you're being told to, to call this young student who's a boy, use feminine pronouns, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go along with your boss, your government, or are you going, but then you're going to be telling a lie, right? And God's word says, no, any lie comes from the devil and you might lose your job. You're going to be, per you're going to be persecuted and, and it'll taste bitter. Uh, when you have to tell a couple, hey, you're living together. And that's in sin. You have to tell a couple, a gay couple, that's wrong. You know, and it might be a family member, it might be a child, it might be a grandchild. All of that is bitterness, right? Anything else? On that chapter. All right, now let's go to chapter 11. So that was a short chapter. This was a little longer. So Revelation chapter 11. Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me. He said, stand up and measure the incense altar in the temple of God and those who worship in it. Exclude the outer court of the temple and don't measure it because it has been given to the heathen. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will commission my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that are standing before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire is going to come out of their mouths and consume their enemies. If anyone should want to harm them, it is necessary that he be killed in this way. These two have the authority to shut the sky so that no rain falls during the days when they are prophesying. They also have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and the authority to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will fight against them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Some from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit them to be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will also rejoice over them and celebrate by sending gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up into heaven in the cloud as their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was also a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed by the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave praise to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. See, the third woe is coming soon. Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and you will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were sitting on the throne before God also fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We thank you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and reigned. 
The nations were angry and your anger has come. And the time has come when the dead are to be judged and when you will give the reward to your servants, the prophets and to your saints, namely to those who fear your name, the small and the great. And when you will destroy those who will destroy the earth and God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, crashes of thunder and earthquake and a great hailstorm. All right. So John is giving given a reed or a measuring rod. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do this one. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 40. So Ezekiel gets a similar. Uh, you can turn to it. Ezekiel 40, the first four verses. The reason I want you to turn to it is because uh, of the, the temple compound picture that's on 1295. So Ezekiel 40, pages 1294 and 1295 in the EHV. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me there. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain. On the south side, there was a structure that resembled a city. When he brought me there, I saw a man who looked as if he were made of bronze. In his hand, he had a linen cord and a measuring rod. He was standing by the gatehouse. The man said to me, son of man, watch carefully, listen carefully, and pay attention to everything that I am about to show you, because you were brought here so I could show to you, report everything you see to the house of Israel. So again, what John is given of a measuring rod to measure the temple of God is the same kind of thing that was given to Ezekiel. But the reason I really wanted you to read this, because I could have easily read it, is just to see that image of the temple compound. So you notice how it's a square. And so you'd have the, uh, the letter, uh, you're going to have the uh, Holy of Holies, and then, and you've got the, the temple, and then the temple courtyard, that's where the Gentiles are. So the Jews, the believers, they're in the temple. The Gentiles are going to be out in the outer court, because that's going to be important as we explain this vision. Uh, so what Ezekiel is seeing here is a symbolic representation of the new temple and the new land of Israel. But the perfect fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision is not going to be Herod's temple because Solomon's temple is destroyed. Uh, it's not going to be Herod's temple. That's in the time of Jesus, but rather it's going to be in the perfect fulfillment of uh, the New Testament church, what we're dwelling in right now. And then the final dwelling of God's people in heaven. And then we'll see later on, both in Ezekiel and then also in Revelation, that an angel measures out the city. So here it's a temple, then it's going to be the whole city. So in going back to Revelation, in the symbol, who are the worshipers in the area immediately around the temple? And then who's in the outer court? So who's in the inner court? Yeah, the Jews. So those are the believers. 
And then who's in the outer court? Gentiles. The Gentiles, who would be then? Us. Yeah, well, no, not, not here. It's going to be the unbelievers. Unbelievers. Yeah. So what he's, what he's picturing here is, uh, well, I'll ask you the question before I give you the answer. What does it symbolize? That you've got, it looks like the church, because you've got the, the temple and the courtyard. You've got believers and people that look like believers all together. Now it's more than just go to the church. Well, it's hip there's going to be hypocrites, right? They're going to have the true believers and then the, the hypocrites. But the hypocrites look like the true believers, right? And that's the way it is here on earth. And uh, where, where does persecution come from? The greatest persecution. Is it from inside the church or outside the church? Now, I, I should, that's a bad question. The greatest persecution comes from outside. Where is the most damaging persecution? Is it from those outside or those inside the church? Inside. That's the inside. That's the way should I ask the question. Uh, so how, how do Gentiles, the unbelievers, you know, Gentiles, yeah, that would be us. But uh, in this image, the Gentiles are those that are outside the church that were those that look like Christians, but aren't. How do Gentiles trample God's temple, God's people today? Give me some examples. Yep. Yeah. Pro, those that are for abortion, those that are uh, for transgender, I was so I was coming over here today, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about, you know, Netflix had this, uh, they've got Dave Chappelle, so comedian, and he's in hot water because he, he actually made jokes about transgenderism and so forth. And so some Netflix people, they, they protested and it was like 14 people. But, you know, when you read the news reports, it's a lot larger. And then, you know, news reports say too, and then there was a clash between those that supported Dave Chappelle and, and those that were against him. Well, the clash was the 14 Netflix people and one guy out there with a sign said, I like Dave and uh, jokes are funny. And that was it. And they came and they tore his, tore, tore down his sign. And then all they've got is a stick. And then they, they yell because there are police there. And they, He's got a weapon and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and the reason I bring that up is because you're going to have one side that's, and, and then they're all helped out by the government and the media. I don't know if that guy was a Christian, but you know, if you and I were out there and saying, Hey, we support, not that we support Dave Chappelle. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm guessing that the show is foul language and so forth, but you know, we support the free speech. And then who's going to look like the bad guy? It's always going to be framed that Christians are. Other examples. All the people that are believing in the old age earth and new age earth, you know, millions of years versus short time. Yeah, that's a good one. Kind of with everything else going on, we kind of forget that one, the you know, age old evolution one. Yeah. 
there's so many people being converted to that over and then and that's one of the things that i i always reference to with any kind of experts and it can be your doctors it can be scientists all that kind of stuff when they believe in evolution i always question everything that they they say then and the reason i do that is because oh, what i've got written down is that uh you know shelly helps you know she does sixth grade math math at wls well if these kids you know, they, they know the equation. They figured out how to do the equation. She taught them how to do that. But they put down two plus eight because they thought the three was an eight. It doesn't matter. The rest of the equation does it. And there's other equations in there. They had something wrong in the beginning. And think of that if evolution is starting point somewhere that there is an absolute truth, there is no God and so forth, in my mind, that makes everything else suspect, right? But again, and then we're the ones as Christians that are looked on as you know, science deniers because we don't believe in millions of years. We believe in 10,000 years. Other examples? Yeah. Climate control. Okay. Those are the experts. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and again, if we say, you know what, maybe we should take a reasoned approach at this instead of saying, uh, you know, thinking, you know what, there's a there's a huge ball of gas that's on, on fire that's really close to us. That changes the climate more than anything else that anyone ever could do on this earth. Okay, nope, they're wrong. Yeah, any of those things. And any time when the government is shutting down churches, you know, in Australia uh, and Canada and America and France and England and so forth. And you see that so much uh, the last two years of persecuting Christians. Uh, something I, I, I was studying again for my book, and I thought that was really interesting, was Flacius. Uh, Flacius was a pastor at, was a friend of Luther. And so right after Luther died, there's something called the Augsburg Interim. And the, the emperor, Emperor Charles, so he's got Lutheran princes and he's got Catholic princes. And he's the whole point, you know, the whole Reformation, it's all about becoming Catholic again. Lutherans, this is God's word, we're going to stand up for it. Well, the emperor wanted to impose the Augsburg Interim. And one of the things was uh, it became the adiaphoristic controversy adiaphoras things neither forbidden nor commanded by god and so one of the things that say the emperor did was you have to wear a white alb okay the, you know the emperor said that well flacius said and you know i wear a white album a lot of pastors wear a white alb. well what flacius said then is even if it's a good thing or it's a thing that can be yes or no you go against it because why the government told you to do it in the church and the government has no say within the church. So I asked another, I asked a professor, is this, would, would this be correct in applying his words of, hey, what about when the government tells you, you have to be separate. You have to be six feet apart. You have to be, you can't take communion because they didn't say that here, but they said that in other places in America, you can't take communion, you can't sing. And he said, and it, 
again, reasoned Lutheran approaches, if they were saying, if the government said, uh, only impose certain restrictions on churches, but everything else was open, then that would be wrong. For example, one, exam one thing I read about out East was that a Catholic priest was not allowed to go to a member's home to give him communion. Okay, that's how you know, the height of last year. And yet that same person in that home could order a pizza bed to be delivered. And so that, you know, then the Catholic church sued the government and won <coughs> because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't equal. So I just bring that all up is anytime that the government is going to impose certain restrictions on Christians and a church that they don't impose on others, that's, that's this, isn't it? That's uh, the Gentiles working inside of the church. See on the news last night, uh, there's a pastor in Canada who was on the news last night. Okay. Um, he was arrested, put in jail for speaking out against mandates and vaccines, going against the true so they let him out, but his conditions of being let out as he was put on probation. Uh, but it also, if, if he gives sermons, he has to tell the government version of what's going on with mm. uh, mandates and the vaccine. He has to give them their version. He can't go against it. And he said, well, I ain't going to do it. So he's, he's, he'll be in the news again, probably. But yeah. Canada's going... Canada's gone Russia. I mean, they're really gone off the deep end some of this stuff. Yeah. And was he Polish? Was that Polish guy? Yeah, that guy. Yeah. That same guy? Yeah. He's been very vocal for a long time. Yeah. He's and called him Nazis. And get out of my he, was, he was from Poland and he said, yeah. this reminds me of way, way right. back in Soviet Poland. Soviet he was used to Nazis. <laughs> yeah. And I know we're going off of this tangent, but uh, that's okay. Is that Yesterday, one of my members was talking about that she's got child in the UW system, and the child had received a letter um, because the child wasn't getting regular testing done because that's one of the conditions if you're not vaccinated to regular test. And the letter basically said you have to come and you have to write a this long letter because it had to be less than had to be more than 500 words and had four different points of laying out all of the ways that the student was wrong of missing the testing and so forth and why the testing was right and all these things and then the second point is and if you don't do that then then we as you know the chancellor whomever has the right to do whatever he wants and uh, a member, member was talking about one of the conservative uh, radio talk show hosts had gotten hold of this letter and then found out this isn't just this one UW school, it's other UW schools and uh, maybe interviewing our member and, and others about this. But all of those kind of things when the government is imposing certain things, it just keeps going and going. And uh, I don't want to go too far into that. Um, where's the uh, outer circle yeah where do all the other religions fit in this they're all in the outer circle i mean you go on asian you got you know the islam religion and the hindus and shintus and you know yeah. various religions out there where do they fit in are they in the outer circle too yeah i think that i think they would be 
Yeah, I think those would be the ones that and then are persecuting the Christians. Now, yeah, like the Shinto religion, that's not persecuting us. But over in China, definitely would be. And then they would be persecuting the, the Christians there. Verse 2 might say something. About yep. Verse 2 says the heathens are excluded mm. from this measurement. Okay. That they might be the heathens. Okay. So good point. Yeah. So the heathen and then, so the heathen and then the ones that look like the Christians. Good. Thank you. Uh, what are, what's the 42 months and the 1,260 days of three and a half years? What is that? It is a symbol. Well, I have the quest Bible. Okay. And it says that it refers to the three and a half years and it stems from prophecies in Daniel. And uh, the king of Syria subdued Jerusalem for three and a half years, beginning in 168. And during this period, the temple was desecrated and the Jewish people were ordered to abandon the faith. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. There you go. And uh, so what it's saying there is tying back to, to Daniel, which I hadn't found in my studying. What I found, what I had studied was it's three and a half is half of seven. So seven is God's covenant. And, uh, but all of these times is the New Testament period. So all of them, 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, is all exactly the same time frame. But that's the New Testament period, the time of persecution. And then later on, when we get to, uh, I think it's three and a half days, just a short time. Uh, the two, two olive trees and the two witnesses and the two lampstands. Uh, for that, turn to Zechariah chapter four. So page 1413. Okay, Zechariah chapter four. And again, what we're going to see here is that this vision with the two witnesses and the lampstands and the uh, two olive trees, it's taken right out of Zechariah. So uh, chapter four. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and woke me up in the same way that a man is awakened from sleep. He said to me, what do you see? I said, look, right there, I see a lampstand made entirely of gold with a basin on top of it, with seven lamps on it, and there are seven channels leading to the lamps that are on top of it. There are two olive trees beside it, one to the right of the bowl and one to its left. I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my lord? The angel who was speaking with me answered me, don't you know what these are? I answered, no, my Lord. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, not by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. What are you, you great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a great, become a level plain. Then he will bring out the capstone with shouts of grace, grace be with it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. For who despises the day of small things? They will rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So there you see the plumb line again, just like in Ezekiel and John. 
These seven are the eyes of the Lord that range throughout the whole earth. Then I asked him, what are these two olive trees to the right and to the left of the lampstand? I asked him a second time, what are the two olive branches that are beside the two gold conduits that pour out the golden oil? He said to me, don't you know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of all the earth. Okay. So then, who are and what are these, wit these witnesses, these olive trees and these lampstands in John's vision? Well, think of what do lamps do? They give light. What do olive trees do? Give fruit, right? And the witnesses, what do they do? Claim. They give witness, right? So these are these are preachers of God's word. So like uh, Moses and Elijah, the two that were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, they were two witnesses. They're examples. They're messengers of judgment. And then the fire that comes from the witnesses' mouths is God's word, his law. So the idea is though the, uh, the witnesses are small in number, they are faithful and they're backed by God's power. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Oh, except, except that, and it's not insignificant now that I say that, uh, it, it's significant in that uh, in the old, under Old Testament law, every matter that was brought before a court had to be determined by two witnesses. So there's, there's the idea with the two witnesses. You know, one eyewitness, like Jamie and I were talking about before with bad eyes, she just had cataract surgery, I may have some one witness, eh, they might have some iffy eye issues. Or, you know, you know witnesses too. If you watch any kind of court drama, right? They're always bad. But now if you get two witnesses and they corroborate it, now you know that it was true, right? And that's the idea with the two witnesses. So good question. Uh, and then these, uh, the section is built on three stories from the Old Testament. So you've got from 2 Kings, a bad king of Israel, Ahaziah, in anger, called for the prophet Elijah to come to him. Elijah says no. And then lightning and fire comes down from heaven and burns up the commander and his army, I think 25 soldiers. So the king says, go get him. And another commander and another 25 soldiers are there. And Elijah says, no. And then fire and lightning comes down and burns up the commander. So a third commander comes with an army and he says, please don't, please don't burn me up. And then he's, he's, he, and then the Lord says to Elijah, I'll go with you. Uh, and then in first Kings chapter 17, uh, Elijah told Ahab that it wasn't going to rain until Elijah commanded it to rain. And I think that was seven years. And then in Exodus chapter six, verse one, that's the introduction of the plagues. So what this is saying here is, how does that apply to John's vision? Uh, that God's witnesses, and that's going to be me as a pastor, but it also means all of you as lay people, uh, that you will not be kept from preaching God's word. God's going to give you protection 
and power as you go forward with God's word. Uh, I always like to think of Peter, Jesus' words to Peter here, that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. Didn't the lampstands represent churches earlier? Earlier, but not here. Verse 7, what happens, this is back in Revelation chapter 11, what happens when the time for prophesying is over? Look at verse 7. Prophecy was killed. Yeah, by whom? Yeah, the beast that comes up out of the abyss. This is probably going to be the beast that comes up out of the sea, which is going to be the government that persecutes Christians. So this is, a, this is a reference to when Satan and his agents are going to be released to the sea of the world. And yet, what comfort does this section give to us as we spread God's word? Because what happens to the witnesses? They rise again. Yeah, they're killed and then they rise again. Their, their bodies are dragged out in the streets. They're not given a proper burial. I was thinking when, when I read that of the movie Black Hawk Down. That's an older movie. But you you remember the, the reference? That was based on a real story, right? Where was that? Was it Mogadishu? Somalia. Somalia. Yeah, where they took the U.S. soldiers that were... They were still alive after the Black Hawk helicopter went down and just dragged them in the streets and videotaped it and everything. Yeah, and that's that's the image that came to my mind as soon as I read this, of this is what happens to the witnesses. Even when they finished their testimony. Oh, when they had just preached, when they preached what God told them to preach. Well, that's already happened. Well, this is a vision of us, that we go out and we preach. And yet, what? where's the comfort? The it's not going to be real comforting that we're going to be persecuted, right? That's not going to be real fun. And yet, where is the comfort here? Yeah. And this is going to happen for three and a half days. So the final tribulation of God's people will be a relatively short season. And again, you go back to Matthew 24. That's why I said, if you just read Revelation in light of Matthew 24, like we did last week, you understand everything. Matthew 24, verse 22 says, if those days were not shortened, nobody would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Uh, so, but for three and a half days, the lawbreakers, Satan and the beast, they're going to have their way with us. Is that now or is that coming? It could be now. I mean, the New Testament period is the three and a half years, and you see them, uh, and you see the, the beast and working with Satan and so forth throughout the New Testament time. But this is saying that there's going to be three and a half days or it's going to be really, really bad. So the reason I went like this is, could this be the really, really bad time, and then Christ comes, or could it get worse? Worse. It could get worse. Now, I, I want to be careful, and that's why I didn't say it. I wanted someone else to say it, is because I didn't want to say, oh, 
Jesus, and then Jesus comes, comes tonight, and Pastor Zarling, you said she's not coming because it could get worse. No, Mary said it. <laughs> uh, but it, it, Jesus could come, and then the three and a half days, you know, we're living in it, or it could get much, much worse. And if he, I think if you look in, uh, you know, Larry referenced of, you know, Canada and, you know, you said Canada was acting like Russia. Well, can that happen here? Yeah. Yeah. Can it get worse here? Can it get worse elsewhere? And even, and worse, even than it is in Canada and uh, in Australia to become more like it is in the, what you would say, the non-Christian parts of the world? Definitely. This is just the second world. The third world is still coming. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's still a third world that's coming. Uh, anything on those verses before we get to the seventh trumpet? How would you summarize this whole paragraph? Because I'm a literal person and I just look at this stuff and oh, three and a half days. How do you summarize? Uh, I would I would summarize it. I guess if I were preaching on this, and I guess I didn't thought of it too much, is I guess just it. I don't know. Anyone else want to jump in while I'm thinking? You think it's bad now? Just wait. Yeah. <laughs> or if you think it's bad now, just keep on preaching. I guess that would be probably what I'd say, something like that. It says there's going to be a great earthquake and a tenth of the city. What city? And did we see an earthquake? Or is that yeah, I was hoping you were going to ask me about that. <laughs> there's earthquakes everywhere. So what it says here in my notes, a tenth of the city collapsed, 7,000 people were killed. The text offers no explanation of these figures. It's clear that, the end of the seven, that at the end of the seven, seven trumpets and at the end of the seals, we are again at Judgment Day, the resurrection and the gathering of believers to heaven. Perhaps the small numbers here are intended to distinguish us from the third woe in the next paragraph. So even our own Lutheran commentators aren't exactly sure what it's this is referencing. It kind of references like what's going on now, don't you think? Yeah, but again, this, like Larry pointed out, the third woe is coming. It's more. Because the problem is you got all you get some of these other speakers, you know, they, <clears throat> when you talk about revelation, they interpret it literally and they're trying to give you a literal interpretation of yep. it. It just really confuses the whole thing, really. mucks it up. But what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm just kind of looking through these verses and trying to pick out one phrase to use at, you know, like, would it be a sermon theme? I, I guess I might, just to be, you know, edgy in a sermon, might be rejoicing uh, at the torment of the prophets. That sounds edgy, doesn't it? Except that's verse 10, isn't it? Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate by sending gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Except who are the ones who are rejoicing? It's not the Christians. It's the unbelievers. They are rejoicing. 
Yeah, they're, they're coming at Christians. They're rejoicing at all the stuff uh, that they're going to be able, that they have been and are going to be able to do to us. And yet, the comfort is in the next verse. After three and a half days, the breath of life came into them, and they stood on their feet. These are the two witnesses. And a great fear fell on those who saw them. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven, and the enemies watched them. That as we preach, and we preach without fear, and I think that's a big part of it. We've been too afraid. We've been afraid a lot because no one wants to be persecuted. None, none of us wants to be dragged out of the streets. And yet there's nothing they can really do to us, right? Eventually, whether they throw us in prison, they take away our businesses or they kill us. We get, we get to hear Jesus say to us, come up here. Oh, I don't have it. And then the last part, the doxology. Let's focus on these phrases and let's look at what does each phrase mean? The kingdom of the world belongs to God and his anointed. And he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. What does that mean? Well, I know, but yeah, I know they're self-explanatory, but I want you to explain them. <laughs> yeah, so our Lord has, and his anointing have taken final control of the powers of this world. These are the powers that have been persecuting Christians for centuries. Again, the apostate church and the persecuting government, and yet God has taken control of them. Uh, we thank you, Lord God Almighty, this is verse 17, who is and who was because you have taken your great power and reigned. What does that phrase mean? And how do we feel about that? Good. Yeah, and we feel good. We're thankful. Uh, our struggle is over because God is in control. The nations were angry and your anger has come. And, and I think, what's that? Punishing, punishing yeah. the evil. Yeah. And then going on to the next phrase that goes with it. And the time has come when the debtor to be judged and when you will give the reward to your servants of prophets and your saints, namely to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and when you destroy those who destroy the earth. So about the nations being angry, God judging the dead, and the dead here are unbelievers, and he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. How does that make us as believers feel? Vindicated. That's the key. And it's not in a bad way. Right. I think that last sentence in the previous paragraph is kind of like prefacing the second coming. You know, great earthquake collapse. People are terrified. <laughs> you know, it says the survivors are terrified, so I'm assuming that's everybody. And they're only going to be terrified when there's a second coming. Right? 
And so that's predicted about the second coming that people drop to their knees in fear. Right. Yeah. And I think I'd have to say some more, but I think the survivors that's talking about the unbelievers that they are praising God. Like you said, that every eye will see him, every knee will bow and praise him, even those who persecuted him. Yeah. And so like, like Jamie said, we can feel good that we are vindicated. You know, it's like when, if you, uh, uh, this one thing that comes to my mind is say, you know, you get ripped off, you know, maybe it's a car dealer, uh, mechanic or with the vehicle or whatever, or with your house or something. And then you end up going to court. Well, and then you feel good when you're vindicated in that because you were taken advantage of. And that's what's happening here. You and I as Christians are being taken advantage of by those who persecute us. And we feel good that God isn't just ignoring us. He's watching it. He's waiting and he will vindicate us on the last day. He's going to punish those who, who persecute us. So the seventh trumpet is sounding the second coming? Yep. And then next, next lesson, then what we do is we start visions over again, looking at it in a different way. The, la <clears throat> the last verse is there. And God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So now the ark of the covenant is visible. What does that symbolize for God's people? And what does it symbolize for those who reject the Lord? Well, see, the ark of the covenant is that he fulfilled his promises, that this has come true. Yep. And then what do we get to do because of it as Christians? Yeah, we get to go to heaven and we're we're able to approach God. Our sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb and we are praising him. And again, for those who have rejected the Lord, what does the Ark of the Covenant mean? Yeah. Just like God's people, they carried the Ark into battle when they had that Ark then they were, they were victorious. And I, I love the story of, let's see, I think the Philistines, the Philistines got a hold of the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the, their temple of Dagon, their fish god. Do you remember what happened there? They didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, so just imagine like a, a, like a merman type thing. That's what I always picture. Now a fish fish god because they were philistines were sailors and then this fish god statue falls down and yeah it's like he's bowing down to the lord symbolized by the ark of the covenant and his head breaks off its hands break off uh the people the animals of the philistines they're getting boils all over their body just because the ark of the covenant is there and they get rid of this thing um, and then i being an indiana jones fan i think of Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, Fifth one's coming. It's coming. oh, I that I have no interest in seeing. Jeez, uh, but at the end of the movie, when they open up the Ark, and then the people's yeah. their faces melt off, and then you know, fire of the Lord goes through all the Nazis. They're standing there. That's what's going to happen. No, I don't know if that's exactly what's going to happen, but there's going to be. Uh, uh, that God's people will be vindicated. Last question then, how do these words encourage patient endurance on our part? 
Yep. So that's the key. God wins. That no matter how long it's going to be before the Lord comes again, he's going to come and vindicate those who believe in him. All right. And then, so there's no class next week.